have a Bible, Psalm 75 is where I'd ask you to please turn this morning, page 416 in the church Bibles. We're actually going to read a few verses from Psalm 73 for reasons that will become apparent as we get, as we begin the sermon. But um, page 416, Psalm 75 is where you're, you can place yourself in the Bibles. And while you're turning there, just let me thank everyone for allowing me the time off. It is always greatly appreciated. It's always needed and it is always certainly enjoyed you should know that i think it's an absolute grace and joy that god gives to me to be able to spend uninterrupted time with my children and my wife they are a pleasure to serve they're absolute pleasure to be around and frankly just to stare at so and only they can only take about 12 or 13 days of me in that concentrated time then they send me off so two weeks is about right also Dale Geisler and Tom Howard, I just want to thank them publicly for feeding you from God's word while I was away. So you might have a question or two about what was said today or sung or read. If you do, when when we're through this morning, I'll be up here. I'll be happy to try to do my best to try to answer those questions for you. So we're going to read from the Bible, then we're we're going to pray. Psalm 75, for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks... For your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. You, ch- you say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your horns against heaven and do not speak with outstretched neck. And so the word horn is essentially strength. Verse 6, no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another, and the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. I will cut off the horns of all the wicked But the horns or the strength of the righteous will be lifted up. And now just the first few verses of Psalm 73. Just turn your page back probably one. uh, one. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold when I, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Okay, let's bow together. Let's ask God for his much, much needed help and grace this morning. So, Father, we thank you that on the cross where Jesus died, your wrath was satisfied so that every sin was laid on Christ, so that here in the death of Jesus Christ and only in the death of Jesus Christ, we live. And so we would ask you this morning that you would help us, Lord, as we think just globally for a moment, Father, as we think about the nation of Iraq in Syria, the state of Hawaii, inner city, inner city Chicago, continent of Africa, Father, we would ask for your mercy and your might to abound, that you will give compassion and bring conviction and put to end evil, Father, and have mercy on the peoples there. And so this morning as we're here, we know, God, that we're not putting in time And we know, Father, that we're not here to hear 
the words of a mortal and sinful man. But God, we are here to hold you in the highest regard, to worship you, and to hear you, the living God, speak through your living word, the Bible. So this morning, it remains absolutely essential, God, that you would help us set forth the scriptures in such a way that we will receive them, that we will understand them, in order that we might make application of them and go out into the world, a world that will soon be coming to an end. And Father, thank you that you know how desperately we need your help. And so we ask these things for Jesus' sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that for every Christian, if they're prepared to be honest, there comes a point when we question our faith. There comes a point when we ask ourselves the question, is this really all true? Is this, is this not just a world of make-believe or a pipe dream? And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian for this to happen. It can happen not only to the very young, but also to the very old as well. Not only to the immature, but to the mature. And in this, we ask ourselves the why question. Why do certain things happen if God is real and our faith is true? And for anyone with a dab of intelligence that pays attention to the world, we ask that question because there's an awful lot that seems to happen which contradicts a kind of breezy confidence in God, a kind of one, two, and three, and off you go into an unbelievably fantastic whole life. There are disasters, there's wars, there's misery, there's disease, there is injustice, there's exploitation, there's lack, there's evil abounding, children dying, adults dying, children rebelling, wickedness excelling, pride-filled living, and there's suffering. How could a good God allow all this? How could a good God allow this all to continue? And one of the great characteristics of the Psalms as a whole, which we learned last month, That Jesus sang these psalms in synagogue worship and he prayed these psalms in synagogue worship. Is that the psalms express day to day what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Because in the psalms we have the full range of every healthy human emotion. Every one of them. And these psalms then tell me not only how God would speak to me. But also they tell me how I am to speak to God. How I'm to speak to God in a world that is often time. If I'm going to be honest is frankly very, very confusing. And so right away that takes us to our first point, the writer. Because the writer is honest about this and he understands this. And so you can see there if your Bible is open that the writer of this Psalm 75 is named Asaph. And he's not to be confused with Aesop of the famed Aesop fables. I mean, some of those fables are absolutely great, but that's not him. Asaph was one of the choir directors of Jerusalem's National Choir during the reign of King David. He, he also exercised a prophetic gift. So he was a theologian and he was a musician and he wrote Psalm 73 all the way to Psalm 83. And that becomes very, very important because as you read straight through those Psalms, you begin to get a kind of proper sense of this fellow. Because normally when you think of a choir director or a worship leader, you know, you might think of someone upbeat, extroverted, optimistic, energetic, and, you know, two degrees, you understand why that be, might be true. But, but it's not true here. ASAP, as you read these Psalms, he's downbeat, he's introspective, he's gloomy, he, he's struggling with things. I mean, as you think about that, he's not going to do pretty good in the interview for the worship leader. I mean, because how can a guy like that get the crowds going, as they say, for Jesus? But Asaph was honest 
And these psalms come as a result of an enormous, enormous struggle. I'm going to suggest to you years in the making. So this is a slow, painful, maturing crisis of faith, a faith that he admits in Psalm 73 that almost collapsed. So that when we come to these psalms, we're coming to psalms that have been honestly thought through. There, there's, there's absolutely no fluff here. Okay, there, there's no easy believism here. He's not going to let us off the hook. There's, there's no tricks, you know, three tricks to get you to the good life. Because this writer is overwhelmed by the difficulty of believing in God's goodness in a world like this. I'm just going to say it again. He's overwhelmed by the difficulty of believing in God's goodness in a world like this. Therefore, when Asap makes this declaration, when he writes these things down, God is good, chapter 73, verse 1, God is good, God is good to his people. A song that God's people will sing together. We know that after all that thinking and after all that experiencing and and, and all that considering, thinking about the totality of things, about life and about death and about what comes after, that after he comes to his conclusion, his conclusion can be absolutely trusted. He can be trusted. God is good to his people. Now, he gets there, but it's quite a chore. It's quite a chore because, as I said, he's considering life on earth. And and you need to be mindful here. He's not ticked off because he doesn't have it good. A lot of times people are ticked off. Christians are ticked off because they think they don't have it good. And so someone's going to pay. That's not what's happening here. He has a good post, if you would. He's Jerusalem's national choir director. King David was was a good king. His reign was relatively good. Prosperity was there as a whole. So he's okay in that, in that realm. But he's thinking and he's caring and he's carrying out his charge as a worship leader. In other words, he was being responsible. Do you remember that word, what the word responsible means? You know, doing our duty, our yes is yes. We are our brothers and our sisters keeper. Therefore, Asaph's not speaking as an ostrich, you know, with his head shoved in the ground. He's not speaking as Mr. Wonderful. You know who Mr. Wonderful is? You know, he always gets the girl. He always gets the job. And because he has the Midas touch, he always gets the gold. It's not him. And he's not speaking as an arrogant fool who's just stuck on himself, unable to see life past his own front porch. No. Asap is speaking as a man. He's speaking as a man of God who's been through God's divine ringer and he comes out saying with his clothes torn a bit and sweat on his brow, he's a bit battered, he's a bit shaky, but he still affirms to the world and he puts it down in song that God is good. Surely God is good. That's our first point. That's the writer. The writer has depth. He knows his charge. He cares about justice for all. He's trying to understand the world better. And he knows, without any question now, he knows that God is to be obeyed and God is to be worshipped and honored. And he's troubled when God is not. Why? Because God is good. Surely God is good. Second point then that takes us to reality. Now, the issue which gives way to the reality is at the heart of Psalm 75 actually begins in Psalm 73. That's why I read Psalm 73. The issue is, and here it is, why do the pride-filled wicked do so well on this earth? That's the issue. Why do these pride-filled wicked do so well on the earth? And that causes the writer Asap great, great difficulty. And as we think about things, if we can think about life past our front porch, we do see that pride-filled wicked people excel. They excel in this earth 
to others hurt many times. Even though Psalm 11, 27 says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. Proverbs 29, 7, the righteous care about justice for the needy and suffering, but the wicked have no such concern. Now, sometimes we forget that when the Psalms come to us in chapters, we can connect them together to help follow the writer's line of thinking just as we would do in the Gospels or in Epistle. And that's why I said in the beginning that these Psalms, 73 through 83, is penned by one man, Asaph. And that's why I read Psalm 73, verse 1, because this is where he begins. Verse 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So the psalmist begins with that comforting thought that God can be relied on to be good to good people. And he says, surely that's true. So fear God, keep his commands, and God will bless you. But no, right? The psalmist looks around at things, and he says, and he's opening up his mind and his heart to us. Actually, the evidence is quite to the contrary. This is an aside. This is why I can't stand most religious how-to books because they play the percentages in those things. We'll leave that for another day. The psalmist looks around at things and says, actually, the evidence is quite to the contrary. So he looks in the workplace and he sees in the workplace that a lot of times the evil, wicked, pride-filled people excel. He reads his newspaper, same thing. He looks at the world, same thing. And he says that the evidence is actually pointing to a different direction. That's why he writes in verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, two things are happening here. First, a question arises out of this. Who are the wicked in the Bible? Well, the wicked in the Bible are those who live ignoring God. They live without any reference to God. They live without any reference to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. The mad passion to call their own shots and not have God rule over them. That's the wicked. So they enjoy the good gifts that God gives, life, air, breath, world. But they ignore the giver. And they can do this gracefully. They could do this defiantly. Or they can actually do this, as we know, very, very religiously. So this week in my study, I got my legal pad out and I wrote down the question, who are the wicked? And then I wrote down some answers, not every one, but some. And here's what I put down. Who are the wicked? Answer, me. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, I'm as wicked as they get. Okay, so then I wrote some more things down. The pure moralist. And what I mean by that is you have a moralist who have no affection for Jesus Christ, just good deeds, but no Christ. The pure moralist, wicked. The pure spiritualists. There were tons of spiritual people in Austin, Texas, where we went to on our vacation. Tons of them. They were all over the place. Wicked. The pure mystic. Wicked. The pure monastic. So the frugal, simplistic, hermit, ascetic, no Christ. Wicked. The pure humanitarian. The pure religious. The pure patriotic person. So the wicked are those who pretend like God is not existing in the world. There's no God to listen to, obey, adjust for, and no judgment, certainly, that's coming at the end. Or the wicked are those who make up a God in their head. And this God decides things an awful lot like they would. That's the wicked. Filled with pride, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. The choir director is saying that he almost was tripped up and began to actually envy the wicked. In other words, he took an honest look at the life between uh, earth and heaven. Okay, just earth and heaven. And he said, man, look at the wicked go. Look at them go. It's all good. They, They live long. 
They have much. Their bodies are strong. Their kids are fantastic. Their relationships are hot. They don't show up on Sabbath. They have no limits of what is okay and what is not okay for them to do. And the psalmist is being brutally honest. And he's saying, I started, I started liking this. I started actually envying this. I'm copying this a little bit. I mean, Tom Cruise is such stud. $20 million a pot just for looking great when he's running with wet hair. I mean, isn't that the truth? He's a handsome fella. And he's running. I wish I could run like that. And then there's a lady, Julian Moore. She's got it all. And I want to do what she does, the psalmist says, even if it's just for a weekend. Now, there's this gentleman named Sinclair Ferguson. He's a retired Presbyterian preacher. He's from the high street. And the reason why I tell you this is because it's important when you read this quote. So he writes in his book, Abandoned by God, this. For ASAP, there came a point in life when he began to notice the prosperity of the wicked. He was beginning to ask whether life the life of faith was really worth it. Did it even make sense? There comes a time in the lives of many men and women committed to Christ when similar questions arise. You may be one of them. You've been living for Christ, serving and obeying his word. These have been the most important things in life to you. Since your teenage years or a student days, perhaps doing his will has been the dominant drive in your life, no matter what the sacrifice involved. In fact, you never really thought of serving Christ as involving sacrifice. You never gave much thought to material possessions. You knew that you had a far greater treasure in Christ. What he wanted was more important than position or salary or homes and possession. So you went into some form of Christian service or overseas, or perhaps you sacrificed your career because you wanted to devote yourself to serving others, your family, church, in Christ's name. But for some reason, you have recently begun to notice your contemporaries. They were no more intelligent than you at school. No nicer than you in personality, certainly, but look at them. See the cars they drive, the house they own, now mortgage-free, the schools their children attend, and the clubs to which they belong, the vacations they take, and they would not give a penny for your Christ. They are actually slightly embarrassed, perhaps a little surprised that you have not done as well as they have. But then they remember you became, and he puts in quotes, religious. When a friend of mine found out that I gave myself to pastoral ministry, the word came back to me that said, he said, you're kidding, I would have thought he would have done much better in life. Psalm 73, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure pure and have washed my hands in innocent. All day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments and I've spoken out like that. I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood the pride-filled wicked without Christ, if you would, final destiny. And here, loved ones, is when our honest friend, who's the worship leader, Asap, begins to tell us what he learned in the sanctuary of God. So he's in the house of God. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. And he's telling us, this is reality. The reality now and way past heaven. This is reality from all eternity. This is how things will be played out, guaranteed. So this theme of the pride-filled wicked flourishing and imposing God making their own rules, always on the plus side of material things. That theme is met with absolute biblical reality. So he begins in Psalm 75, verse 1, thanking God for the nearness of his name. That's where he begins to show us about reality. So you have to think like an ancient person here. And the nearness of God's name 
meant that God himself is present. Subsequently, all the attributes of God are present as well. The almightiness of God then is with his people, says Charles Spurgeon. We sing not of a hidden God who leaves his church to fate, but one who even in our darkest days is near and a very present help. So, so this means that it's impossible for humans to plumb the depths of God's wonderful might, to plumb, plumb the depths of his name. And that's what Asaph is trying to get the congregation to sing. So do you see that word tell in verse 1b in the NIV? Men tell. Well, the Hebrew word for tell has, it's actually a banking word and has the idea of accounting. So what he is doing, and I think this would be a great exercise on the Lord's Day when we're through here, he begins to lay out, if you would, on paper and to calculate all the good things that God does, all the wonderful deeds. And of course, as you think about those things, the half has never been told. Because you think about life and about heaven and about earth and about eternity and about the gift of eternal life and how things will go on and on and on way past death in heaven. Asaph's thinking about this. He lays it all out and he says, God is near, here's my conclusion, and God is absolutely wonderful in light of ultimate reality. God is wonderful. Do you know that song? I probably quote it too much. Praise my soul, the king of heaven, to thy throne thy tribute bring. You see, that's what the psalmist is saying. So, so be careful, always down and out, despairing Christian. Be careful. A season, yes. A way of life. In light of this, why? Why? However, specifically now, the wonderful deed that the congregation is to sing about in Psalm 75 is actually the coming judgment. So it's almost humorous. You have, you have the pride-filled wicked, you know, sticking out their neck, strutting their stuff. And God's people are singing to God about his judgment on the proud. Do you, do you remember that movie, um, The Gladiator? When he has that wonderful line, the time for men to honor themselves will soon be coming to an end. That's what the psalmist is saying. The time for people to honor themselves will soon come to an end. God will judge. That's verse 2. Do you see it there? God is wonderful, verse 1, but he's also the adjudicator. And you can see that in your Bibles. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly. So in verses 2 through 5, as God speaks, God's saying, it's time people to wise up. He's telling me, Joe, wise up. So the congregation sings God's word back to God. And God is saying, there's a point in time that I have chosen when I will judge the whole world. Consequently, when people die, they don't just rot, do they? When people die, they don't just automatically go to heaven. When people die, whether they be very, very old or even the very young of age, it's not automatic that they're in. And people don't go to any place they can imagine. But many people assume these things. But God says, when we die, our judgment is coming. But listen carefully, it's going to be an upright judgment. It's going to be an unbiased judgment. So there's not going to be any bent witnesses. There's not going to be no corrupt judges. No slick lawyers, no, no, no politics, no injustice. The power or prestige or the influence that one carried on this earth means absolutely nothing here at this judgment. God's judgment will bring justice to all and it will be highly anticipated by some and it will be overwhelming to some. Verse 4, to the arrogant I say, boast no more and to the wicked do not lift up your horns. Do not lift up your strength. Don't strut your stuff. I choose the appointed time, God says. It's coming. When will it come? Will it come when God decides? 
And listen carefully. Please listen carefully. No group, no human being can make it happen when they want to happen. Not human motivation, involvement. I mean, since I was eight years old, people have been collecting money to try to put a temple in Jerusalem. I mean, surely by then, I've lived a long time. Surely by then, they've got the money together to put the temple there. And oftentimes you hear this from from TV preachers, not all, but many. And they always want to hurry things up. When will it come? It will come at God's appointed time. And no one controls God's timetable. Now, what Asaph does is he he knows he's human. And we don't like to hear this judgment talk. We we don't like to hear that we're going to be judged, which which is why in God's reality... Not only is God wonderful and he's the adjudicator, but he's also the holder and the silencer. Do you see that there? Verses 3, 5, 6, and 7. Look at your Bibles. Verse 3. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. In other words, it's two things happening here. On a macro level and on a micro level, God holds seemingly uncertain things to certainties. So on a macro level, the universe, the earth, all the creation, all the creation ordinances, God holds this together. He's the one that put it there. And on a macro level, God will end the world when he determines the security of the future is in the hands of God. So you don't have to really save gold bullion if you don't want to. On a micro level, he's the one that grants us each breath and each heartbeat. Do you ever think about that when you wake up? I mean, every time, God, every time. God. And that is the one who's speaking. Therefore, mere pride-filled women and men who speak with outstretched neck, verse 5, they're going to be silenced. Do not lift up your horn against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. No one from the east or west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It's God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts the other. C.S. Lewis The proud never take personal involvement of the wreck they encounter because of their own faults. So we do not like a God that will judge, and many people cannot stand this aspect of the gospel. But it's the gospel. It's in the scripture. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Lord of the universe, and you and I must repent, and we must ask God for forgiveness by believing on the cross because the time's going to come when it will be too late. So repent and believe now. Get in line now because the Master is coming. And of course, when you say that, many people get angry with you. They get, it happened to my wife. People have been angry with her about the gospel. It happened to me. I, I remember this. My son was very young, and you probably don't remember. You were with me. We were at a drug recovery center in Arkansas, of all places. And we were there for about a week and a half, two weeks, and we were just working through the gospels. And so I came to the place in the gospel where Jesus said, you need to repent. And this young man, six foot everything, you know, with biceps the size of my waist, he, he gets up out of his chair and he's ready to take me down. I mean, I'm like, I'm going to die in Arkansas. I didn't plan on dying. I plan on going home. I'm going to die. <laughs> okay, but why was I going to die? It wasn't going to be because of my personal convictions, right? It wasn't going to be that. It was gonna, if I was going to die... Which, believe me, I was sweating like crazy. So I wasn't like, I can do this. And I wasn't. (laughs) If I'm going to die, it's going to be because of the gospel. Now, are you with me? Modern men and women will do what they can to put themselves forward, either on a national level, an international level, a local level, or even a relational level. That was the first sin, to be like God, to call our own shots, to control everything Setting things up as we like. 
And so the psalmist makes us sing, verses 6 and 7. No one can do this. No one can put themselves forward. No one can exalt themselves. God sees all this hoo-ha. Whether it happens here or in the office or at home, God sees this. And yeah, you might have a 10-year run or a 20-year run or a 30-year run of all this foolishness. But in light of eternity, in light of ultimate reality, God will silence them. That's reality. Verse 7, God judges. He brings one down and he exalts another. And at the day of judgment, when this takes place, both the exaltation and the bringing down, both are permanent. Permanent. No second chances. So we have the writer. That was our first point. The, The honest man, honest about the world, speaking the whole truth. He thinks things through way past earth and is captured by the goodness of God. The reality, not only is God wonderful, and not only is he the adjudicator, but he's also the holder of this whole world in my life, and he's the silencer of the pride-filled wicked who play a game of make-believe like little children grasping for everything. God's going to put an end to that. Finally, then, the response, that's verse 8. Do you see it there? And the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Now, the well-taught Christian reading this verse would at some point be brought to their minds to the Gethsemane and to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself, for our sake, drank this very same mixture as he bore in his body our sins, which excited God's wrath on Christ's physical body and on Christ's psyche, even though Jesus was innocent. And so verse 8 is essentially the doctrine of substitution, which is why I've told you many, many times now, The suffering of Christ at Calvary is the perpetual picture of God's judgment on sin for those who reject him. I'm going to say that again. The sufferings of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, that is a perpetual picture of God's judgment, his wrath on sin for those who reject him. That's why we say here, in our place, verse 8, in our place, condemned, Christ stood. In our place, What does condemnation look like? Verse 8, symbolic language. Verse 8, condemned, Christ stood. And and like, thank God. Thank God that he stood there for me. So the prideful wicked, they refuse that reality. They refuse repentance. And so they have to drink this cup. This is the cup of God's wrath. And it's, it's really an unsettling picture, isn't it? It's not the way that we like to think about God. It's a sad scene. God pours out the cup. And the wicked drink it. The pride-filled men and women who, who remain opposed to God, who are already drunk on their own self-fattery, they're going to find this mixture of wine mixed with spices, as gluven is the German term. They're going to find this drink hard to swallow. But they will. God will see it. So now as we think about the beginning, now all of a sudden, I'm not so mad at these pride-filled wicked people who bring such pain on this earth. I'm not so mad at them. I pity them. And you know what? I don't think I envy them anymore. I don't envy them, and and I'm certainly not going to try to copy them. And, And suddenly, patient evangelism makes sense here. And praying that God would save the wicked makes sense here. And suddenly, a pig roast of all things. It makes sense here. I told the first service, I told you this, here I am. I've been here for six full years now, and no one's asked me about Christ. 
You know, when I go out in the world, I do go out and hang out, you know, and I don't glow. <laughs> no one said anything to me about Jesus in six years. And this is where I live. This is my community. The final reality for the pride-filled wicked is verse 8. That's coming. That's coming. So what is our response? Well, well, God's response is that he sent Jesus Christ. That's God's response. So our response is we warn the wicked to stop boasting and start repenting. We warn them. And then we need to sing. Don't we see verses 9 and 10? We need to sing these types of honest songs. Are there any writers here that can write? Why don't you write a song like Psalm 75 so that when the unconverted come into this place, they will leave with something very enormous to consider. And we must not fall foul of thinking that the good life on earth is really something. I mean, it's okay. I understand it's okay. But it's not really something. It's certainly not fulfilling. And it's certainly not to be envied. And frankly, if you're really honest, it can get in the way. So, Hebrews 10. Writing to the Christians. So don't throw away your confidence. It's going to be richly rewarded. Persevere. I mean, for some of us, that's all we have. The day. That's it. That's the day. That's all I have. Persevere. So that in doing God's will, you will receive the good eternal life that he has promised. I don't know for sure, but I suspect it's true that this song that I'm going to quote a verse from, I'm sure that... If you have been here longer than 25 years, you probably sang this song. And the song goes like this. Just a little while to stay here. Just a little while to wait. Just a little while to labor in the path that's always straight. Oh, just a little more of sorrow in this low and sinful state. Then we'll enter into heaven's portals, sweeping through those pearly gates. I think that's the only song that has pearly gates in it that I actually like. (laughs) We always live better, loved ones, with two eyes on heaven than two eyes on earth. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And just look at Jesus now. Just look at him now. The writer is honest. The reality, a judgment is coming. The reason Jesus came is that he drank the cup so that we would not have to. Now think, everyone think, who in their right mind, being honest about things, who in their right mind would not repent and believe? Think it out. It is the most important question you'll ever have in this whole existence we call life on planet earth. And for the Christian, we will survive. That's the title. And the gospel will bring us safely all the way to our home in heaven. Let's bow together. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you that for the joy set before Jesus Christ, he endured the shame of the cross We thank you that our slight and momentary troubles are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So please, Father, grant to your people the strength to resist evil and envy and pride, which comes to us in many forms. Grant to us grace, God, to turn our eyes to heaven, 
in order, Father, that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more dearly, and please, that we would follow you more nearly. Now, to the King, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, world without end. Amen.